Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. In each episode, we talk to the big names of the world of advertising, marketing and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity and the future possibilities for our industry. And today, I'm joined by Pip Murray, who's the founder of the eponymous nut butter brand, Pip and Nut. Pip began producing nut butter in her own kitchen in 2013, before launching her company in 2015. The Pip and Nut range, as you know, soon became the fastest growing brand in the UK and is now stocked in supermarkets and food outlets throughout the country. So Pip, well, first of all, huge kudos and congratulations for spotting something that probably eluded <laughs> almost everybody else. Um, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, oh, it's a joy. So you began by selling these jars of nut butter at a weekend food market. This is a common... Um, I, it's a common story with interesting uh, new artisan foods, I think, mm. that people test them at small scale or at least uh, we have. I think what we owe actually is that the what you might call the food truck movement, the artisan food truck movement, food festivals and so forth are actually hugely valuable in being a kind of petri dish for innovation uh, in new foods. Because it's a way at which at smaller scale you can test the viability of products. And you started in London. So how did you make the leap from that to effectively standing behind a counter to being stocked in the food hall at Selfridges just one year later? Because there must be a lot of people who'd kill for that kind of distributional break. How did you manage it? Yeah, I mean, you're and you're exactly right. I think food markets and, um, you know, any kind of city, but London in particular has like such a burgeoning food industry that, it is a great way to test it and it was a great way to kind of build build the concepts as much as anything else. But yeah, I started at Maltby Street Market down in South London and I was at that particular moment in time still working part-time um, at my day job and I was giving it a go on the side. And, and for me, I didn't work in food and drink, so my background actually was a theatre producer before I started the business. So I didn't have a business bone in my body, didn't know what FMCG stood for, like you know, real novice. And I felt like it was like the first, like, you know, the first easy kind of step that I could make to kind of actually start a business was to to give it a go at a market. So for me, that, that is almost like the easy bit where you're testing it in your kitchen and you're making it physically yourself. And I think the biggest step and the hardest step when you're starting something up and looking to scale it to become more of a national brand is that kind of how do I how do I make this product at scale to the quality that I that I make it in my kitchen? I think that's always the hardest bit for anyone entering this space. So finding a partner and you can do it two ways, I guess. You can you can make it yourself and scale it up somehow by buying a production facility or you know something of that ilk, or you can work with a partner, manufacturing partner, and it's and I chose the the, the second option, which was finding a partner to to find to work to work with, and and that took about eight nine months actually. That was probably the hardest bit. Partially because when you're a small startup business, you know, you don't really have any distribution. Um, nobody really wants to work with you. And it's a funny thing where you kind of a bit of a penny drop moment where you realise nobody responds to your emails. Because actually, like you're inexperienced, you don't have any volume. Um, so a lot of factories don't want to take the risk on you. So, you know, you do have to roll out your kind of sales pitch and really kind of go at it uh, when you're kind of trying to kind of convince someone to kind of work with you. And then I guess there's the other side of the coin, which is finding the right people that you trust and believe also can deliver on the, on their word, I guess. 
did your partner have um interestingly did your partner have food industry experience or so I, I say I say partner I guess I mean ma- manufacturing partner so um I'm sort of a sole founder so I didn't actually have a co-founder in the business which is yeah a, probably another story around you know that as a challenge in itself but yeah the manufacturing um partner that we ended up finding found uh, used in the end to kind of get the brand out the door was um, yeah, brilliant factory because they really understood what it was I was trying to achieve and could also work with me on that kind of relatively small scale. So, so yeah, I think once you've got that bit cemented, you can start to actually think about what is the brand that I want to create and really start to build it out. And that was, I guess, the next big thing was kind of, I guess, the brand that you see today is, you know, what what was created back then about sort of seven, eight years ago. And And I think that equally is a really challenging bit is trying to find the right creative agency to bring what it is in your heart and in your mind out into something tangible and real. And I do think the Pippin Up brand, it's like playful logo, it's very distinctive, was one of the big big things that has to be done. And I guess once you've got that package of product and brand working, I think that's that's when you can start talking to retailers like Selfridges and, and looking for someone. And in actual fact, Selfridges came across the product when I was still selling it at a market. And one of the buyers reached out to say, you know what, I love this product. Is it something that you'd consider, you know, taking into sell or consider um, selling into retail? And that was how it started really with Selfridges. So was really lucky in that sense, didn't have to do that cold calling, which, you know, you often have to do um, and really worked with Selfridges. Once I'd kind of figured out how I was going to scale it up, um, I reached back out to them to say, I think I'm ready to kind of launch this brand. And um, thankfully, they took it. What what drew you to the category in the first place? I mean, I, th- I think for me, it's a few things. I think you uh, mentioned it earlier. I guess I've always had food in my veins in terms of my family. I really, I'm a big, I'm part of a big family. I've got uh, three older sisters, and food's been a big part of my upbringing. In actual fact, when when I was growing up, my mum gave up cooking when I was about eleven and handed it back over to me and my sisters to cook for the family. And I think that was probably the first sort of thing in my childhood that really sparked my like passion for food cooking every day for my family was just something that came naturally after a few years so for me it was I think that was probably the the one of the threads but I think the second piece was really this category I don't I was a consumer so I was shopping the category and I was doing lots of marathon running at the time and so peanut butter is great because it's nutritionally rich in protein it's kind of good for you in terms of for for pre and post running so for me it was something I was eating naturally but when I was picking up the brands in supermarkets every single brand I picked up had palm oil in it and I think as someone that's slightly more health conscious, but also kind of more conscious from an environmental perspective, I was like, I just don't understand why this ingredient is in there. And I think the final piece is just the fact that like, this this was a product I loved, I ate it all the time. I, there was an opportunity to make it a better product, but also I think the brands in that space were so tired, very worthy, and didn't really like communicate what I really loved about this product, which is like the taste and the flavor and you know, that addictive quality that I think nut butter, peanut butter has. Um, and I felt like there really was a lack of kind of that lifestyle brand, which I think I could see in other spaces, you know, um, the obvious one being Innocent was a brand I was inspired by, but there were other ones around the store that I thought really brought that kind of emotive, emotional brand to the forefront. And so I thought, you know what, there's an opportunity in this category to kind of do that, I guess, fill that gap. Is it? I have to say, what is interesting in the Anglo-Saxon world, because this is true in the United States, maybe even more so, Mm. I'm very pro kind of hipster, okay? I think that hipsters are kind of the shock troops of innovation in the lifestyle economy. Um, And what I think you notice is that the Anglo-Saxon world, particularly the US and UK, had a particularly bad food culture because they industrialised very early. And if you look at the US, I mean, until recently, the US was a disaster area for beer and cheese because the whole thing was centralised, actually, in both cases in Wisconsin, Milwaukee uh, and Wisconsin. Mm. But they had this sort of extraordinary kind of economies of scale thing where production became concentrated in one huge place. And, you know, I mean, I can remember being in the US 10 years ago and you could basically get two kinds of cheese. There was the kind of the yellow one (laughs) and the slightly red one. And the beer, the choice of beers was dismal. Now, actually, I'd probably rather drink beer in the United States than anywhere else on earth, which may be Belgium, okay, northern France. But, I mean, I never thought I'd say that. Um, and 
what has happened, I think, is that the, the, the farmer's market culture, things like the Good Food Awards, small local producers, have actually essentially put back, you know, France always had the peasant culture, which was, I mean, France was, very interesting statistic, by the way, I, I always love this one. Um, in France, 50% of the population was rural. I didn't live in a large town or city uh, up until 1950. The US reached that point in 1920, and the UK actually, uh, fewer than 50% of people were rural by, I think, 1850. Extraordinarily early uh, loss of a sort of rural population. And so this kind of hipsterism has actually brought back what early industrialization took out. And I think, um, you know, it, I mean, now, you know, to be absolutely honest, I mean, I'm, I'm going to scandalize a couple of my French colleagues, but I'd probably rather eat in the UK than eat in France, um, which was an unimaginable thing to say, you know, when I was a kid. Um, and that actually access to high quality food and, and variety. The French do have some really weird foibles, like, do you really need a yogurt aisle that's 200 yards long and full of identical pots of white yeah. yogurt. I have no clue what they're doing there. <laughs> it makes no sense to me at all. Um, but this is something which I think Britain is doing disproportionately well. I think it's it's incredibly exciting. We're also, in fairness to Brits, we'll try anything, yep. okay? Because we don't have that native food obsession, um, uh, you know, we're we're, I think, fairly syncretic with food in that we'll kind of adopt ideas from anywhere else without considering them somehow polluting our kind of heritage or whatever, which which also, I suppose, means that our lack of an indigenous food culture has become a little bit of an advantage in adopting other peoples. Mm. Um, but, I, but I have to say, what, what you're doing is absolutely magical. Um, and one of the things I suppose that you was very timely is that nut butter is pretty high in protein and pretty low in carbs. Is that fair? That's fair, yeah. So, so a change in the belief system around what's healthy food can't have done any harm. And there aren't very many protein-rich, carb-light, um, long-life convenience foods. No. And likewise, I think there, when it comes to kind of healthier options, like healthy food, if you like, particularly in this sort of space, I think there aren't that many that are actually genuinely tasty and delicious. And I think that is really difficult to land at the same time. But I do think your point around... The shifting perception of of what is sort of healthy and good for you, like things like good fats, as an example, like you know, fifteen twenty years ago, margarine was what what everyone ate, and that was the norm, and that was because it was, you know, less fatty than you know other like real butter. And I think there has also been a big shift in like people accepting that actually calories aren't all bad, and and also fats can also be good, and that actually. It's what you put in your food as opposed to what you take out. And I think there has been a slow progression around particularly diet culture and things like that, which has changed also the perception of, of products like ours. So I think, yeah, those kind of movements in food has definitely helped. We've definitely been on the tailcoats of, of that kind of growth and trend as well. Um, it's uh, interesting. I, I, I just noticed that sales of nut butter in the UK have overtaken sales of jam, mm -hmm. which again would have seemed inconceivable only a few years ago. And that, again, I suppose, shows the shifting perception of, of sugar and carbohydrates versus protein and fat-based foods. Exactly, yeah. I have a friend who's a doctor who told me that the great misunderstanding about this was that dietary advice tended to be compiled by cardiologists because cardiologists had noticed that a build-up of fat um, uh, essentially uh, you know, it was bad news for heart health. But the cardiologists all assumed that Dietary fat created bodily fat. And of course, if you'd spoken to people who were endocrinologists or who understood metabolism and digestion better, they'd say, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Quite a lot of bodily fat actually comes from the body's processing of sugar into fat. Yeah. And that, so there was a widespread misunderstanding, which almost became, came from the accidental fact in English that the word fat both means a food type and a thing that you have on your body. And the assumption was that one led directly to the other and there was nothing else going on. So I think, I think you'll be the big beneficiary, I think, of, of new dietary science, um, which I think is, is really fascinating. So how do you make, you've made pip and nut really stand out. How have you kept it distinctive, do you think? Um, packaging, obviously. A anything else? For, I mean, I think for me, like it, um, 
I think the the identity of the brand has been well it's been a real like joy I guess over the last seven years is how that sort of the brand has evolved and the world around it has evolved but I think the tone of voice around it as much as anything else I mean we we if anyone knows our logo you'll know it's got like a leaping squirrel and it's got a tail that kind of forms the P of the pippa nut and it's I think really distinctive and like I said earlier playful kind of identity that you can have a lot of fun with but more than more more than that you've got a kind of a character and a kind of personality that exudes that you can build on so simple things and you know this is just one example but for instance some of the words that we use in the business so our office is not called the office it's called the nest uh we don't look for things we forage um you know we we don't just eat eat stuff we scoff so we, there's a bit of um squirrel energy and that we try and embody throughout our business and brand and that not just as in the brand itself but it's in the kind of the people and how we hire as well and I think the more you can create that kind of moat I guess around the business and the kind of identity really is where it all starts and stops and you know you can really build off the back of that has really helped and I think you know we, we've started now in like more recent years doing sort of above the line advertising which is was a big deal for a small brand like ours like it, it you know the first time seeing it on a tube underground station these big posters I think the 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 advertising itself has been a lot easier to land and has been much more sticky thanks to the fact that we've got a really distinctive brand identity so for instance one of our biggest first campaigns we did was um we we basically shot real life squirrels in Norway and we used different sort of shots of these squirrels and and uh kind of use kind of found expressions and quotes from our Instagram where people kind of uh, were saying oh my god I love this product or something like that and we quoted it and we used a squirrel that kind of embodied that kind of feeling within the quote from our fans so effectively the fans were our squirrels um which is really fun campaign and really kind of grabbed people's attention because on the underground station there were these giant squirrels that basically took over so I think there's just little things that we can by have a lot way, of fun. By, by the way, this is the thing that the ad industry will never tell you because it sounds so banal. Yes. Okay. But using animals in advertising basically makes your advertising more effective. My <laughs> argument is that we've evolved to look at animals. Okay. We've had a million years where we pay more attention to living things, in particular animals, because we can eat them, they can eat us in various cases. Um, and so uh, the advertising industry never says um, we th- will try and use an animal in our branding. Dulux's dog, Andrex puppy. <laughs> OK, the entire oeuvre basically of um, uh, CDP, um, uh, sorry, BMP, uh, you know, if you look at that was, you know, basically creating the Hofmeister bear, creating the dog for John Smith's Tonto. OK, now, no one can stand up in front of a board of directors and say, what animal can we use? Because it makes you sound ridiculous. It's nonetheless, I think, true, basically. That, and, and actually, someone from Adam and Eve said the same thing to me. They right? said, look, basically, when we can, we get some sort of anthropomorphic or other animal into the advertising because it just makes it more effective. I, I worked in direct marketing and there was a mailer for BT for their spring sale which one year was about three times as effective as it had been in any previous year. And they went around everybody asking why on earth this was. They couldn't see that there was anything different about the offers they'd made, anything about the rational propositions. And everybody was sort of post-rationalising with things like the economy and, Mm. you know, and, and, uh, you know, economic optimism. And they brought it to me and I said, no one else is going to tell you this, but you've got a load of rabbits on the envelope. Uh, I would I would be absolutely confident that if you took the rabbits off, you'd, you'd find this thing was a third as effective. So you've, 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 whether by accident or design, you've happened on one of the great truths in advertising that no one will share because it makes you sound kind of dumb. <laughs> Love that. Space for, we're, in the UK, we're suckers for fluffy animals, basically. I mean, we generally like, I mean, people do call them rats with tails. I think that's very, very unfair. But, you know, <laughs> um, but generally, generally squirrels are, gener- are fairly well liked. That's yeah. it. Well, your fa- it was quite some quite funny conversations actually in our office because we spent quite a long time sort of defining how fluffy the tails should be on the squirrels. Because to your point, if you, if they're not fluffy enough, they don't look cute enough. So yeah, 
Um, I think some people in our team thought we were absolutely mad when you find yourself having these sort of like long-winded conversations about how, how squirrel-like <laughs> they should be. Um, so yeah, it was good fun. But I guess, yeah, we have a lot of fun, I think, with the brand. And I think because of the fact the identity in itself um, allows you to kind of play around with it. And I think also second to that is we whilst I talked quite a bit about um you know the functional benefits of the product as a business actually rather than sort of selling those functional benefits we try and sell the taste and flavor because actually I believe that you know it's better to try and sell you know convince people to try and try your product from a taste perspective and then tell them behind the scenes oh yeah by the way it's also quite good for you kind of it's much more of an accessible approach to food and so yeah I think we we don't we're not preachy we're not patronizing and we certainly don't kind of drill down on that functional piece because I think it's 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 quite boring really and also I think a bit inaccessible I think for some people yeah I mean it's it's also I mean you benefit from the naturalistic fallacy which I think in this case is a is appropriate which is it's highly unlikely that nuts are an unhealthy food and very likely Mm. they're healthy simply because we've kind of evolved to eat them you know, I mean, you know, certainly in northern climates, it probably was. Because if you think about it, one of the problems with dietary health is that high carb foods tend to be both cheap and also long life. OK, now you've you've got something which is unusual, which is it's high in protein and, you know, and low in carbs. And yet it's actually a long life and convenient food, whereas most high protein foods are actually a bit of a faff to prepare mm. and they go off in three days. So the advertising works, does it? I imagine it does because it's got animals in it. I can't say that, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's I guess it's a funny one. I guess when you're a smaller brand and you're trying to, you know, you know, gain awareness, it's quite difficult. So the only uh, really it has been the one thing that's really turned the dial on our performance mm. as a brand. So. I think the hard thing when you're sort of, and oh God, I feel like I'm telling the absolute expert um, with you here, but I guess, you know, you know, it doesn't always go directly into an immediate rate of sales. So you don't expect these huge peaks in performance in your um, rate of sale, but it does do a massive job in driving that awareness, which we'd never really been able to do when we were kind of, whilst we've got quite a big social following as an example, which we've often lent on or we've used PR um, this was a real kind of turning point when we started to invest. And I guess your first advertising campaign will always be the best one, right? And then it's going to be always hard to follow. But yeah, we're, we're learning a lot. And I think it's always difficult to, because, you know, your budgets are much, much smaller than anyone, uh, you know, your competitors, but also just generally. And so you really got to to, to try and to learn what, what works for you. But you have, to, you know, it does feel kind of sometimes quite uncomfortable when you're suddenly investing in quite big chunks of um, media. So I've, I've started to get used to it, but yeah, it's a bit of, some of it's a bit of a suck it and see and, and see what works for your, for the brand itself. Uh, this is, uh, it's, a, it's a glorious story. And the fact that there is this pathway where you can go from farmer's market stall mm. or market stall to, uh, large-scale distribution do do most of the multiple stock you now yes so we're now listed in yeah all the supermarkets in the uk um still in selfridges as well so we've still managed to straddle the two kind of you know being in asda as much as also being in selfridges yeah. which is quite challenging but yeah we're we've got quite broad distribution in the uk now which is um yeah amazing really and sometimes a bit of a pinch me moment when i see our products all in all these stores and um yeah it's a really amazing feeling well, I think you've got that great story. Now now the category is outselling jam. Yes. That actually shelf space needs to be repurposed a little bit. Exactly. I'm, I'm now going to be on the hit list of jam manufacturers. I know, they're going to be after you. <laughs> they're going to be after me. You don't want to mess with those jam manufacturers, I can tell you. you know, I bet, like I bet. Oh, I'd be, I'd be, absolutely. <laughs> um, those tip tree boys will, will be... <laughs> They'll be knocking on your and then, door. And, 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 and nothing, nothing to, to do... With, I mean, nothing touches the marmalade mafia, of course. I mean, you can't mess with that. <laughs> but um, nonetheless, I mean, the, the supermarkets aren't blind to the fact that this is actually, let's be honest, quite a high margin category. Is that fair for them? Uh, I, I, I don't know if it's necessarily high margin, but it's... Um, yeah, I, I guess it's, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, it's OK, yeah. Yeah, actually higher margin than jam, almost certainly, actually, interestingly. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, uh, any exports? Are you are you dabbling with exporting to other countries? So at the moment, um, we're very much like focused on the UK and, and Ireland, but we're looking potentially further afield and, and sort of scoping that out at the moment. And I think for us, it's always that kind of balance of trying to figure out, um, 
not try and do too much at once but you know if we're looking at new categories in the UK and where where can we kind of broaden the brand sort of get build on I guess our success in the sort of spread style and where can we leapfrog to next so most more recently we launched like a range of nut butter cups which is kind of like a healthy healthy Reese's if you like if you know Reese's peanut butter cups um and so yeah we're kind of looking at potentially new categories so I guess doing that and then also potentially looking abroad so we're just trying to kind of strike that right balance but certainly um I think there's opportunity in some of the big bigger markets and um you know potentially looking at even the US if that's a, an option for us as a business which for yeah, whole foods must be quite appealing because exactly. it would be the cheapest thing on the shelf yes <laughs> anyway uh, but uh, whole paycheck as they call it yes oh my god yeah um, <laughs> It's very I mean, the U.S. food market. I find very, very strange because it's completely bifurcated. Mm. It basically seems to split. They don't have a kind of sane middle ground. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Around like Sainsbury's. No. It's essentially, I. It, it seems to be completely bipolar, going from the money no object to everything's bought on price. Yeah. You know? And I find... You know, it's interesting that Tesco kind of failed there with, um, what was it called? Fresh and Easy, I think it was called, wasn't mm, it? Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, Tesco failed because it's such a baffling, uh, weird category. Yeah. I suppose you get Trader Joe's, which is a sort of reasonably sane kind of retailer. Yeah. But I, fi- I find American food retail, you know, strangely weird. I mean, it, most things in the US are cheap, but I remember I was staying with my brother-in-law in Los Angeles, so we went and did a family shop for the two families. <laughs> it practically got into four figures. Oh, my God. What the hell is going on here? You know, this is madness. I know, but, and, um, that, and that's the thing with that. In actual fact, the US is the number one cheapest market to buy food and, food in the in the world, but actually second to it is, is the UK. So we do have an incredibly kind of cheap kind of, you know our supermarkets do a good job of providing really reasonable value for people but yeah it is amazing Whole Foods I mean the US have this like real disparate you've got Walmart on one end and then you've obviously got yeah the premium Whole Foods and places like that which you know we're I guess quite lucky in the UK that we have a little bit more of that balance in in, in yeah. our offering. Yeah I think I think it helps doesn't it undoubtedly because that you know, there's you know, there you can migrate. I think it's much easier going from Selfridges to ASDA than it is going the other way around. Oh yeah, um, you couldn't do it the other way around. Yeah, you couldn't sure. really do it the other way around. Turning up in Selfridges and saying this is very popular in ASDA probably it's not going to cut it. No, it's not going to cut it. <laughs> no. And that's the thing. I think with um, when you're building your kind of range and distribution, it's always quite interesting. I think certainly in the early years, we used to use our distribution very much as marketing. So where we were seen and, and, you know, we focused quite heavily on London initially when we were kind of building out the brand in all the kind of premium, premium places that you'd expect to see it. So whether it's a really cool hip gym to like a really great deli, like it's actually brilliant when you can actually kind of use distribution slowly to actually build the brand and and that you can use all those case studies that you build to sell to then Ocado and then you build from Ocado, then you, you jump into yeah. kind of Sainsbury's and then you build into Tesco and 
it's like always these kind of steps that you kind of do I guess as your brand building and it's I think often not really thought about enough when you're I think it is to some degree but when you're building a brand it's not just about the packaging and the ad advertising and the way you market it it's also just where you're seen and how you're seen um plays such a big influence on I guess the success of a business so you know you never want to I'm a personal believer of like start small and build from like the premium accounts because you can never go backwards and never rush too quickly into kind of the big retailers because you need to do that brand building initially you need to get that story cemented and you know once you're in Asda like you said there's no going backwards um so you've got to kind of do it in a kind of really kind of structured way that's not kind of too fast it's very it is actually I think Ocado I mentioned hipsters earlier I think uh, online food delivery in the UK I think leads the world in that by quite some measure Mm. not only Ocado obviously I mean um uh, all, all of the major chains do it and that has some interesting attributes. One, you can probably dis- you know discover things more easily there, or there's more. There might be a little more serendipity. Obviously, if you're an obscure category, uh, it's easier to search. I, you know, I, to be honest, I wouldn't know where in a super in a physical supermarket the nut butter was was actually stocked. Mm, exactly. Um, yeah. uh, well, where, where is it? It is it's, next to jams. It's and next to jams. Yeah, you can find it in the yeah, spreads. Yeah, those bastards. Yeah, <laughs> 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 um, but but. But it is interesting that actually having um, what you might call a varied ecosystem of choosing is good news for smaller players. Yeah. Because, And also, the other great thing about shopping online, which nobody ever mentions, they always talk about the convenience of delivery, but there's also the convenience of being able to find things you've bought before. So if you buy something and like it, the danger is in the real world that you'll always forget what it was. And having a record of your past purchases and having those past purchases kind of nudge to you as you near the checkout i think is uh, in evolutionary terms it's very good because you if, if you're reminded of it you get god yeah, i have that and i really really liked it i'd better buy it again you know uh, whereas actually you know that tends not to happen so well in physical supermarkets yeah and i think if you've got a great product as well so online obviously a lot of people shop by reviews as well so yeah. if you've got great reviews and partially because you have a great product or only because you have a great product and that also really supports you so I think it's ultimately like yeah you put your money you put your money where your mouth is in terms of if you've got a great product you can rely on the fact that you'll probably do really well online because people will give you that feedback and then people will shop by their reviews or by their reviews and they'll give you a go and then you get in their favorites basket so it's a bit of a self-perpetuating cycle yeah which is, I think is um it, it's much better at what you might call variation selection and then reproduction yeah. than physical shopping is. So I think the UK possibly benefits from having that, um, uh, you know, having online purchase. It could be click and collect, arguably, as well, which is just a more reliable way of repeat purchasing things you've liked than previously existed. Mm. So I think it's kind of handy. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it is good news for the food sector and very good news for smaller players, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly also the likes of Amazon, although, you know, they are taking over the world. But Amazon, likewise, is a great way of getting that national reach and be able to kind of service yeah. like the whole of the UK without necessarily having to sell through, um, you know, retailers. And, you know, I'm a big believer in sort of, you know, I do still believe ever like there's a place and a, and a need for physical retail stores. I don't think everyone will go online, um, but it is amazing to see that landscape shift shifting. And even our own direct consumer as well in the last 12 months or two years rather have, has absolutely exploded. So it's really interesting seeing like this kind of real shift in the retail environment. And as a brand, it's great because you can get you know, particularly if you're a small business just starting out, suddenly you've got access in, to, like I said, national distribution without having to sell to maybe Tesco as an example. And if the retailers are smart, what they should do, and they could have used loyalty card data mm. to do this, and I'm never quite sure whether they do or they don't. But there are two things which are interesting, is that if you have a product that isn't bought in huge volumes, but the same people buy it repeatedly, the retailer needs to realise, one, that, that that product availability might be decisive in them using your store or might be a reason for yeah. them to shop elsewhere if you discontinue it. But also, um, uh, you know, having lateral information, which products are, are not necessarily very big, but once experienced, never forgotten, as it were. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, what was it? Um, uh, for, once driven, forever smitten. Um, <laughs> Uh, when you have those products with high repeat purchase, they are actually more valuable 
than products which are bought, you know, very occasionally by a huge range of people and only once. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how well, I'm, I'm very annoyed that Collier's cheddar cheese seems to have disappeared from uh, a large number of retailers because it was a kind of game changer for me. In the, I'm Welsh, so I have a natural mm. affinity. I, I don't think dairy products should, you know, be really quite right if they come from Eastern <laughs> Welsh border. Um, but, you know, I treat them with suspicion. But, um, uh, but, but I mean, it, it does interest me that both loyalty card data and, uh, and also, obviously, online shopping should improve that understanding which is that 10 people buying something once ain't the same as one person buying something 10 times. Mm. And I'd be fairly confident in saying your repeat purchase rate is pretty damn good. Yeah, um, and we have a really high percentage of um, loyal shoppers as well. Like on, say, yeah. our online retailer, Ricardo, 66% of people buy us and only us, um, which is actually really, really hard to, to achieve because obviously we're all creatures of buying things on promotion and buying things when everything's on deal and so that, that is really hard to kind of pull people back to your brand to always only buy your brand especially if other people are promoting at the same time so yeah tip there tip there would be use promotion on Ocado but use it in a don't make it price promotion in other words mm. make it a multi-buy or buy this get this for less yeah yeah. I think there are lots of ways on a cardo you can do promotion which doesn't devalue, it fundamentally doesn't deposition or devalue the, the basic product while still providing people with a nudge to try something. Exactly. And I think it's a yeah. true test of a good brand if you're not having to deep discount. And, you Thank know, you. Yeah. Yeah, we, we don't discount on it or we do do some promotions, but we would never do half prices or we'll never do buy one, get one freeze. Those sorts of things which just... People aren't buying necessarily your brand then, they're just buying something because it's cheap. So, yeah. It's, it... You might you might want to do a buy two, get one free on the grounds that people who are large households, who are consuming a huge amount, the price margin, obviously, is mu they're much more sensitive to that than, than smaller households who are consuming less. Mm. So there's not a, I mean, if you like, it's like the season ticket, okay, if you, you know, uh, you can't charge the same price for someone making a journey 200 times a year as you can for people making the journey once. So there is a way in which you can practice price discrimination through multi-buys. Um, I'll, um, I'll give you an example of this. I always think the hotel industry is absolutely stupid in not discounting a second room for your kids. Mm. Because if you think about it, a couple with no kids, okay, is staying in one room and they're paying for it with two incomes. Whereas a family of five is paying for three rooms, quite possibly out of one income. Yeah. Okay. And so it's more expensive to stay in the Premier Inn, okay, if you've got three kids per salary than it is to stay in a five-star hotel if you're a dual-income couple without any kids. Yeah. And so, so there, there are cases where I can see why promotions, you know, in the same way that you sell large quantities for less in the States. In the US, that goes slightly absurd. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, what, what, you know, washing powder containers that kind of, you know, basically supply you roughly until the, you know, until the next millennium. The end of time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the, partly because Americans have basements. Someone explained that to me. They've it's got the space. The reason for that. They've got the space, you see, and you can basically be a bit of a hoarder. Uh, whereas in the UK, you, you wouldn't actually be able to get into your bedroom. Yeah, if you, if you... <laughs> especially if you're in London. Yeah. Um, what, now, how, was your, how was your COVID experience? Sales presumably held up pretty well. Yeah. It's not a bad product to stockpile, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. if you're going to sit on anything, it's probably a good thing. Um, yeah, we, gosh, yeah, it was a very busy um, year and a half, actually. So when we, um, when COVID started to hit, I mean, it just sales went through the roof because I guess we sell through grocery channels we sell online as well and we're a product that people eat at home so more people are eating breakfast at home I think there was a fact there was like something like 10 million more eating occasions at home um, every week thanks to COVID obviously people staying at home more often so we benefited off the back of the fact that people's shifting behaviors meant that they were at home more often and and I guess with nut butter it is well something most people eat it at breakfast you do also snack on it throughout the day it's kind of a good thing to have on I don't know an apple or you know you could have it yeah. you know as a, as a snack on a note cake or something like that so yeah it was uh crazy actually and I think the tough thing in that environment was just trying to keep up with the demand when everything else is also moving and you're working with factories that 
you know, having staffing issues and not being able to get supply in from um, different things. But it's been definitely probably the last two years. I mean, we were lucky in the sense that sales were, were massively up, but an incredibly difficult couple of years for working in food and drink. And obviously right now we've got all the driver shortages and um, inflation in the market happening because of um, pricing going up. And yeah, it's just really difficult. It's a really difficult time. But yeah, I think we were lucky in the sense that during the last year and a half, I guess lots of people probably tried our brand that maybe might not have done before. And so that was well, that was great. And yeah, from a team perspective, I guess the biggest challenge is that you've got a very young team. I've got quite a young team and you know we all live in London, living in small yeah. flats. And you're actually just trying to keep that cohesion, which I think when you're a startup, so much of what you rely on is that sort of real camaraderie that togetherness that you get in the office and we we have an office in Spitalfields it's a great area we go out a lot there and it's it's that is a great area isn't it fantastic it's it's so great and and just suddenly going to being remote it like some of the energy got lost out of the business I think in terms of that feeling of togetherness and so I think that was probably the biggest challenge it's like I guess a leader within the company (coughs) is just how to keep people feeling like you're all working together and and together in that sense there is a counter argument to this which I make occasionally which is whereas you may not want your own staff to work remotely Mm. it's hugely to your benefit if your consumers can yes because it's a huge increase in disposable discretionary income and it also means more people spend more time at home which means that Pret's loss is your gain. Exactly, yeah. So I'm, I'm always asking that Henry Ford question. Henry Ford sort of created the two-day weekend in the United States mm. because he realised if it became established, it was then worth people buying a car. Is that right? And he thought, That's Henry so Ford fascinating. Thought, he actually believed that leisure was essential, a, a reasonable degree of leisure was essential to the growth of the consumer economy. It was an extraordinary insight. Yeah. And I think... so. Uh, and by the way, by the way, there's also a little counterbalance, which is if you go into the office three days a week, one of the things I find is that people in the office now are there because they want to be there. Yeah. So they're much more friendly and sociable and generally open to conversation and engagement than they than they, they were when, you know, 40% of people were there kind of under duress. Yeah. And they really wanted to just get on with writing something in silence, but they were forced to sit among a load of people having a chat. Yeah. And so in some ways, making the working week a bit more bifurcated you know two days where you get on with stuff um you know it, you know and you can concentrate and three days which are more dedicated to sociability may be actually better than trying to solve for the average yeah but it's certainly good news if your consumers can do it because as i said it's a huge amount of sudden you know it's a, it's like a, it's like a big tax cut for okay now a lot of people can't work remotely we shouldn't forget this but quite a lot of knowledge workers and quite a lot of other people actually carers and so forth can now find employment uh, which doesn't require them to commute i also think that's true of retired people i think most people retire because they want to stop commuting not because yeah. they want to stop work yeah so actually actually this and, and also i think it'll promote a foodie culture you know we've worked a little with gusto oh yeah and i think the prognosis for those food kits um is actually pretty good because, you know, when, when you get home, when you effectively stop work at 6.30 rather than getting home at 8, yeah. your appetite for rustling up something interesting is going to be that little bit higher. A lot more scratch cooking happening. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 it, it definitely is and was a little bit bittersweet every time lockdowns happen, not only because obviously it was a global pandemic and not, not great, mm. but also, yeah, <laughs> working at home again. But like you said, sales would, would, would increase every time lockdowns happen for us. But yeah, I definitely think that balance of, of two, three days, whatever it ends up being, and um, we're back in the office three days a week now. And people, yes, yeah, certainly it's a, a much more sociable environment. And yeah, I think generally, like, I think there is a, we, we're starting to get that feeling back, I think, that we had before COVID, which is, yeah, that togetherness, like I mentioned. But yeah, I think the working world has shifted in a, in a really great way. And I think for, for women in, in particular, and being able to kind of have a bit more balance and be able, you know, with looking after children and things like that and family life, it, it definitely creates much more balance, I think, within the workplace. So I think it is a good thing that these things are shifted, for sure. Do, do you draw on... Do you, do you draw on your theatre experience still, unconsciously or consciously? Do you think it's influenced the way you've you, you've taken the business and the way you manage staff and teams? Yeah, I mean, so 
I think a little bit, but it, so I studied anthropology at university. So ah, okay, there's no better thing. Uh, oh, joy. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. By the way, Gillian Tett's book Anthrovision is very good because oh, she's an anthropologist who found herself in the business world. Mm. And so anything Gillian Tett writes is pretty interesting from an anthropological perspective. I'll definitely oh, that, pick that, that up. So that's hugely valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a funny one. A bit, a bit of Bourdieu never does you any harm. Exactly. No. Gosh. Yeah. No. That's that's throwing me back to my university days. <laughs> But yeah, so I think I, I did a I did a lot of work on material culture at, at university. That was like what my dissertation was on, actually. So I think weirdly that has definitely fed into certainly how I understand sort of how objects are perceived and how people interact with with things around them and what things mean to them in their homes as well as much as anything else. So I think that's probably the thread that's probably linking through my career, which you know I, I worked in the the arts and and I was always quite passionate about museums and things like that which was why I stepped into the creative ah. world and that was the leapfrog and the science museum was where I worked um, as a theatre producer so it's slightly weirdly connected it's funny isn't it when you look back at your career and you you kind of think oh if I speak on a face value it sounds very random that I started a nut butter peanut butter brand but in lots of ways you can see no. how all the threads link together and certainly anthropology has been an influence on me for sure and I do love I love, I'm a, I'm a people person and I love observing how people act. And I think I love more than anything watching people in supermarkets. It's so satisfying when you can see people's it's, it's, choices being made out and what they're doing is so, so interesting. I'd rather hire people whose parents ran a shop mm. than hire people with an MBA. Because mm. I think, well, you know, you notice if people grow up in a sort of small business environment, you just, I noticed it about my daughter, you know, when she worked in restaurant work that restaurant work or working in a shop teaches you about business fundamentally yeah. in a way that you'll never actually you'll never actually learn academically at all absolutely you know you it, it creates that kind of instinctive understanding which i think can't be taught in the classroom it's a kind of tacit form of knowledge yeah and i think people intellectualize business a little bit too much sometimes and and yeah. i think there's something really like as much as i can i try and get out into store and just try and be near shoppers and consumers because that is where you learn so much and that gut feeling that you often respond to as a, a business owner entrepreneur whatever is often because of that knowing feeling of understanding your shopper or understanding the people that you're serving so I think it's so powerful and you know you can have all the data at your fingertips that you like and don't get me wrong data is useful in lots of ways but like really you need to be close to who you're who you're trying to reach so that you can understand them and and, and speak to them as much as you possibly can. So, yeah, I I'm, I did hundreds and hundreds of samplings in Whole Foods and Selfridges in the early days when we were starting. And I tell you, a lot of the product development came from just watching and observing and speaking to people as they were yeah. trying our products. So, so powerful. And I guess in the anthropological world, that would be sort of ethnographic research. You're observing people in the, in the wild, um, what they're doing. So, yeah, it's an incredibly powerful thing, I think. Have you got any line extensions coming up that you'd like to plug? Ha we have, I mean, we've got a few things coming out of the door. Um, our latest one, actually, we've just created our the first ever Pippinat Advent calendar, which um, oh. is only live, actually. It's only a small run that we're doing through our D2C and through sort of Whole Foods and some of our, our iconic stores. Um, but it's a really fun product. It contains our nut butter cups, which um, are like a chocolate product. Um, so if anyone wants to have that, it's vegan. It's very nice. It'll be landing literally today or tomorrow. So you've got a little bit of an exclusive there. Ah, I, I, I forgot to mention veganism as one of the other happy yeah. things that's probably contributed. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. The growth in sort of and and that kind of flexy kind of life as well, like people wanting yeah. to kind of flex in between the two. Yeah, veganism. It's funny. It's gone from. I guess being something that was probably a bit like boring and like not particularly exciting to now being like the hot thing in food and drink and it's not just I guess it's kind of slightly being rebranded now to plant-based hasn't it so it's this plant-based lifestyle that people are looking to leave which I think is I mean we're a B Corp brand um, and we as a business oh, think a lot yeah. about kind of people planet and profit and at the moment really thinking about sustainability and really like if you're going to shift one thing as a consumer stop eating so much meat think about other kind of forms of protein that you can get so we're lucky that we kind of fall into that camp naturally oh it's absolutely brilliant what, what nuts do you use in, in total peanut obviously is one is it yeah we use uh peanuts which technically from... isn't a nut it's you're a right it's a legume know. Yeah, sorry. You, you know yeah, you're not very good <laughs> most people don't know that um yeah so we we get our peanuts from argentina 
Um, and our almonds are from California. And then we've done a couple of little things around cashews or hazelnut, but the main ones are peanut and almonds. Because almonds and peanuts are the most popular in the UK anyway. Ah, got it. Uh, excellent. Yeah. And you, you're not thinking of going into things like, you know, milk alternatives, anything like that. You'll stick pretty much where you are for now. Yeah, we're going to stick where we are for now. But we do have kind of... Um, you know our sites in kind of like the snacking the snacking world more broadly so we're yeah. thinking how we can potentially broaden out into there but we actually did have a range of almond milks which we launched a few years ago but they weren't successful actually so we ended up pulling them and yeah I mean the re- I think one of the reasons why they just didn't work I mean it was it's an incredibly crowded space but also I think yeah. I think people looked for our brand for like real like permissible indulgence and taste ah. and flavor and we launched them and they just sat a little bit flat and I guess I spoke a little bit about we're not really a functional brand and as soon as we went into that space it was like they just didn't get people shouting about it and it was just funny and that was one of those ones where you kind of I was doing samplings in store and people would try that product and they would be like "Mm, yeah they're okay but when people eat our nut butters they're like oh my god this is so delicious and it was just that reaction that I just thought was really interesting that again and of course the cups are clever because it, it's got a bit of portability then exactly it, yeah is... you can eat it on the go yeah. and they're super tasty a bit of a treat but still kind of feel good about eating it because it's less sugar etc etc yeah. so yeah they're great and uh, I think you've got some flying your way over the next couple of days so you can uh, you can have those later on the weekend Oh, sensational. Thank you very much indeed. This has been an absolute joy, I have to say. And um, uh, I've suddenly realised we've hit time. So tragically, although I could have gone on for another 20 minutes, uh, that's all for this episode of On Brand. Uh, This podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. And for more information on powering your business growth, you can just visit their website at alfinsight.com. That's A-L-F insight.com. The series is produced and beautifully edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And to help our algorithmic potential, um, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please give us a like as well. So all that remains for me to say is uh, see you next time. And thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.